Today, October 22, is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast, Episode 35, The Color Line, Part 1. Last time, we talked about how Ellen White survived the Johnstown Flood, the greatest natural disaster in American history at that point, in her effort to keep on preaching. Oh, and of course, we checked in with A.T. Jones and his increasingly one-man crusade against Wilbur Crafts and the National Reform Association. Then we talked a little bit about why you shouldn't name a boat after your girlfriend, and finally about Ellen White's final stint as a missionary to Australia, which she was totally less than happy about. Okay. Keep Australia and Europe and Kellogg and Battle Creek and Sunday Laws in the back of your mind, because we're going to take a two-episode break from all of that and strategically pivot to the southern United States. We talked last time about how the 1889 General Conference began to realize that something had to be done about the South. While Seventh-day Adventists were gearing up for their battle at the 1888 General Conference session, Jim Tilgman was being summoned before a court to testify in Mississippi. The county of Granada was investigating illegal gambling, and Tilgman was a witness. And Tilgman declined to be a witness, but Tilgman was told he couldn't say no to a grand jury. It was a credit to Jim Tilgman and the countless men and women of his day that he didn't run away. You see, Jim Tilgman was black and he knew exactly what it meant for a black man to testify against a white man in court. He knew he could die. If he wouldn't testify, he would be sent to jail. So, eventually, he decided to testify. Now, Granada had relatively peaceful relations between the races in the 20-something years since the Civil War ended, but the price of that peace was an often unspoken code that still valued black people less than white people. Jim Tilgman was trapped between the law and that code. And as thousands of black people were discovering, that code was often a law unto itself. But Tilgman testified against M.J. Cheatham, who ran a local store. Tilgman told the jury that Cheatham had invited people to gamble in the back of his store. And when it came time for Tilgman to testify again later that summer, he was nowhere to be found. His body was found in a river. One county historian called it providential that he was found at all. Tilgman's body had been weighted down with rocks, but the river was running 10 to 15 feet higher than usual at that time, and the body caught on a log on its way down just underneath the surface. So when the river level finally subsided, there was the body. Jethan was eventually arrested, and convicted by a jury of ten white men and two black men, and then sentenced to death. It was noted by papers across the country, including the Adventist Review, that this was the first time in Mississippi that a white man would be executed for killing a black man. The Chicago Tribune noted that Cheatham was smiling as he walked up the scaffold to be hanged. We've noted in previous episodes how nearly all Seventh-day Adventists were radical abolitionists during the Civil War. Issue after issue of the review railed against the evils of slavery. But Adventists didn't immediately rush into the post-war South. 
1892, R.M. Kilgore, who was in charge of the work in the South, reported that there were only 50 black Adventists in the South at a time where there were 30,000 Adventists spanning the globe. Charles Kinney had become the first black pastor and did more than anyone to pioneer the work in the South. And while we don't want to forget those hardcore backyard missionaries like Kinney, who risked their lives in the South to win those first 50 people, we're going to focus our story on the 1890s, the decade that the church finally turned its attention to the South, and deal with some of those personal stories in the next episode. Now, it's possible that Adventists would have turned toward the southern part of their own country sooner had they not been pulled into Europe in the 1870s, and, let's be honest, had not the prospect of work in the South not been so dangerous. Hundreds of Adventists were arrested or fined for breaking Sunday laws, and if there was anywhere in the country you were liable to be punished for breaking Sunday laws, it was the South. That was true of Samuel Mitchell. Mitchell was a Georgia man who became Seventh-day Adventist in 1876. He was arrested for plowing his field on Sunday and sent to jail. A congressman apparently tried to give him the bail money, but Mitchell rejected it on principle. He was free to go, of course, if only he'd promised not to work on Sunday anymore. He couldn't promise that. And I don't think Mitchell was trying to be difficult. It's probably that he couldn't take both Saturday and Sunday off. While sitting in that damp, filthy jail, Mitchell got sick and died. And he wasn't the only one. Dennis Pettibone, an old professor of mine from college, wrote, quote, Between 1885 and 1896, more than 100 Seventh-day Adventists in the United States were prosecuted for working on Sunday. They paid $2,269.69 in fines and court costs, spent 1,438 days in jail, and served on chain gangs for 455 days. A large share of these prosecutions took place in the southern and border states. End quote. Then Pettibone found this gem from Obion County Attorney General J.R. Bond. Quote, I wish to God we had more Methodist churches and more Baptist churches and more Catholic churches but in the name of God, I do not want any of these Advent churches or Mormon churches, end quote. And very commonly, Adventists were confused with Mormons in the South, sometimes intentionally. Bond made that statement about not wanting any more Adventist churches before a jury at the trial of an Adventist who, surprise, was caught working on Sunday. Bond warned the jury that these Adventists would infiltrate their peaceful county and try to persuade everyone to get half a dozen wives. Yeah, okay. Well, it became common knowledge that Adventists were going to work on Sunday, so really you might as well prosecute them even if you don't have any evidence of them having done anything wrong. In one case, Pettibone found, most all of the Adventists live so far out in the middle of nowhere that there's no way anybody could possibly be bothered by them working on Sunday, quote, unless people went out of their way to note it and be annoyed by it, end quote. There's a reason why Ellen White had called the South one of the barren places of the earth to work. So you can understand why the southern United States wasn't exactly everyone's top pick. It was in some ways just as much a foreign mission field as Europe. Maybe there wasn't the same kind of language barrier, but the missionaries to the South had to be very careful and very wise. It was daunting. Still, the South was Adventism's backyard, and by the late 1880s and early 1890s, 
the church was really beginning to realize it was long overdue for some spiritual landscaping. Ellen White lamented how little both the United States government and Christian churches had done for the former slaves after the Civil War was won, and she included her own church in that lament. After the Civil War ended, several churches rushed into the South mainly to open schools for the newly freed slaves. Fisk University was started by the United Churches of Christ. Tugaloof College was founded by the American Missionary Association. Morris Brown College was founded by members of the Methodist Episcopal Church. So why shouldn't Adventists get in on that? The General Conference of 1865 was on board. They passed a resolution encouraging work to begin in the South. And a few heeded the call. And that's about it. So by 1890... There were two black churches in the South, one in Louisville and one in Nashville. The Nashville one was planted back around 1883, and in the seven years that followed, they'd been visited by a grand total of three Adventist ministers who preached a total of three sermons. Thus neglected, they were beginning to slip out of Adventism. But the solution wasn't easy. It wasn't as simple as just sending more people or more money. Ellen White came face-to-face with Adventist racism in St. Louis, so much so that she felt the need to scold them and remind them that black men and black women should have just as much respect as any of God's children. And after this issue was tossed around in a few general conference sessions in the late 1880s, Ellen White at last took up the pulpit and told the church to get going. Quote, I know that that which I now speak will bring me into conflict. This I do not covet, for conflict has seemed to be continuous of late years. But I do not mean to live a coward or die a coward, leaving my work undone. I must follow in my master's footsteps. It has become fashionable to look down upon the poor, and upon the colored race in particular. But Jesus, the master, was poor, and he sympathizes with the poor, the discarded, the oppressed, and declares that every insult shown to them is as if shown to himself." I am more and more surprised as I see those who claim to be children of God possessing so little of the sympathy, tenderness, and love which actuated Christ. Avenus stood beside others in declaring that the slaves should be freed because they were children of God. But they also stood beside others in doing little to help make that freedom mean something. And Ellen White noticed the indifference that was creeping into the church. So she went on. Quote, men may have both hereditary and cultivated prejudices, but when the love of Jesus fills the heart and they become one with Christ, they will have the same spirit that he had. If a colored brother sits by their side, they will not be offended or despise him. They are journeying to the same heaven and will be seated at the same table to eat bread in the kingdom of God. When these unchristian prejudices are broken down, more earnest effort will be put forth to do missionary work among the colored race. End quote. Here you see that Ellen White didn't see the problem as being a lack of money or a lack of missionaries, but the presence of prejudice. She judged the Christian slave owners harshly, but then turned and said that if Avenus fail to help the freed slaves, they'll be no different than the slave owners. Whew! Plus, there was this debate about the color line. The color line was that all too visible line between black and white. Why did Adventists plant two black churches in the south separate from the white churches? 
Precisely because you'd lose your life in most places if you encouraged black and white people to worship together as equals. And this was the big debate. Should we be practical or idealistic? Ellen White stated the obvious when she said that many in the South were still acting as if slavery had never been abolished. So should we bulldoze over that prejudice, or should we tactfully tiptoe and work around it? R.M. Kilgore, who was against Jones and Wagner during the 1888 controversy, also happened to be this man who was in charge of the work in the South. Kilgore was an old Union Army captain, and the South was his special struggle for the last 36 years of his life. Few knew the work in the South better than him. This is what he said. Quote, It is hard for our brethren in the North to realize that anything like the color line or a distinction between the two races should exist in the minds of any. But there is no question about it here in the South, and any effort made on the part of those from the North to break down the distinction between the races, thus ignoring popular prejudice, is simply fanatical and unwise. Those who have not labored in the South cannot possibly appreciate the situation. End quote. Kilgore noted how some gung-ho northern Adventists had come down and wanted to preach to white and black and generally had just made a mess of things. To work among black people was to cut yourself off from the white. And it's easy to be flippant today and say, man, forget those prejudiced people, we don't want them anyway. But if your mission as a church is to reach everyone, then you see this is a problem. Besides, the whole point, as Ellen White put it, was that all men are brothers. Jesus loves the racists too. And by the way, that doesn't mean that everyone in the South was a racist, only that it was institutionalized. Several black pastors worked with Kilgore in the South, and they were able to go where the white pastors could not. And so Ellen White saw them as Adventism's secret weapon. This was a mission field they were uniquely fitted for. White Adventists could only do so much down there. The story of Adventist work in the South is not a white savior story. It's the story of a church, white and black, realizing that they couldn't preach the gospel elsewhere in good conscience while overlooking the Everest of human suffering in the South. And this united ministry would bear fruit. As Kilgore said in 1889, quote, We are glad to note this fact, that with those who have received the truth in the love of it, and know the power of the truth in their own hearts as it is in Christ Jesus. The prejudices that once existed are gone, end quote. In other words, once white and black are converted and brought into a relationship with Jesus, these prejudices disappear. So Gilgore pleaded for help in the South, and Ellen White wrote a dozen articles in the review pleading for help. And yet, it was Edson White who stepped up in a big way. Now, we haven't talked a lot about Edson, because Edson was that pastor's kid, or prophet's kid in this case, who rebelled. We've talked about all of this way back in episode 23. It was hard to be James and Ellen's kid, for sure. They were constantly gone, and James was constantly stressed, and it's not like they took yearly trips to Disney. And so Edson wandered and returned and wandered and returned, always in a new mess, always needing help. And it's not that he was a bad apple. It's just that the whole religion thing didn't really grab him like it did his parents and his brother Willie. It didn't stick. And in those situations, it's easy to say there must be something wrong with him. But he just wasn't wired the same way. So he wandered aimlessly, never quite sure what the point of it all was. 
And as Edson wandered, he worked, most often as a printer. And in that sense, at least, Edson was much more like his father than Willie was. It's funny how kids can sometimes be so far from their parents, and yet not so far. Edson's low point came when he confessed to his mother, who was now in Australia, that he was not at all religiously inclined. And this deeply, deeply distressed Ellen, who struggled to respond to him. I mean, what could she say? Here was a man who was so close to Adventism that it didn't seem to affect him. He was the very definition of a cultural Adventist. He knew the customs and traditions, the theology and the insider language, but it didn't do anything for him. So what? Was Ellen supposed to remind him that he was a sinner in need of grace? Man, he knew that already. So Ellen started a letter to him, but she couldn't finish it. And that night she had a dream, a terrible dream, a nightmare, of Edson standing in the water. She would cry out to warn him of the undertow, but Edson ignored it. Someone risked his life to save Edson, but Edson just mocked the man and laughed. Then Edson shrieked, and that's when Ellen White woke up in a cold sweat. Now she knew exactly how she needed to finish this letter to Edson. Quote, You are no more a child. I would that you were. I would cradle you in my arms, watch over you as I have done. But you are a man grown. You have taken the molding of your character out of the hands of your mother, out of the hands of God. Now I see that invisible foe lurking, alluring, and deceiving your soul to ruin. I know your only hope is to cling to God and to your mother and brother. I cannot save you. God alone can save you. End quote. If Ellen White could save Edson, she would have. She would cradle her son again, lead him to the best possible choices. She would protect him from the world. And that's a mother's fantasy. When she sees the curse of sin afflicting her child, she would give her own life to lead him back into the innocence of Eden. We are often only really horrified by sin when we see it hurting those we love. And Ellen's letter was real. This was a low point in her life as well. She was alone. She was in a country she never really wanted to go to. An old woman far away from everyone and everything. Her influence in the 1890s was lower than it had been since the early days of the movement. And now her son was saying he didn't really care about God. She would spend nights wondering where she had gone wrong, criticizing herself for not doing more for her children. And that's a mother's curse. She also scolded him. This was a moment when she most needed his help, where he could work to repair her reputation, her ministry in America, and defend his mother, where he could be a comfort and help to his elderly mother and not a burden. I mean, critics pointed to Edson as a way of distressing and dismissing his mother, saying, hey, you know what? If her own son doesn't believe her message, then why should we? These feelings were real, and they all spilled out together. Back in America, Edson was deeply affected by the letter. He attended some meetings in Battle Creek led by a Dr. Caldwell who was talking about his work in Tennessee. And that's when it clicked for Edson. Edson was enraptured by Caldwell's stories. So he wrote his mom, quote, I have been thinking of going down to Tennessee to work among the colored people. I have proved my own way, and it is a poor way. I now want God's way, and I know it will be a good way, end quote. 
So Edson did what apparently Adventists have been doing at this point. He built a boat. Adventists built a boat to get to Pitcairn, and apparently you needed a boat to get to the southern United States. So Edson had a 100-foot-long paddle boat built and outfitted it as a mobile missionary base. It had a printing press and could be configured as a church, school, a dorm, or even a makeshift clinic. As a result, generations worship in the South today because of this boat. It remains today a part of Adventist legend, a symbol of creativity and conviction. Edson White had always done his own thing. He had never been a fan of the rules or what was expected of him, and that often got him into trouble. But now he was using some of that for God, and his ministry was unique. It was work among former slaves, hard work, dangerous work, that finally awoke Edson White. He had been searching his whole life for a way to make his mark, to not just blindly follow in his mom and dad's shadow. Well, he found it. He left his mark. He called it the Morning Star. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Avenus History content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is AvenusHistoryProject.org, or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Avenus History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign-up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign-up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.